Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samha sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, the purpose of this little talk really is to make sure that we, we're all <coughs> fairly clear as to what the Buddha means by right awareness right awareness and uh, I always think it's good to uh, just go over a little bit of his biography which makes it I think more plain to us <coughs> so remember he was brought up in a aristocratic family later tradition of course builds him up into this huge kingship and all that sort of stuff but basically his father was a vassal to the local king and his uh, people were just part of that empire at the top well kingdom at the top of India which borders Nepal <clears throat> but being of that caste the Kshatriya caste the warrior caste his education would have been you know mainly about um, uh, flashy swords and shields and stuff like that and uh, maybe a bit of astrology uh, yeah things like that there wouldn't be any cooking or you know domestic domestic stuff so we can presume that he lived a fairly happy life really sensually anyway just getting what he wants things like that Somewhere in his uh, 20s, he gets married. And round about 29, he leaves his wife and newborn child. For <coughs> uh, us, of course, that sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Desertion. Uh, but you have to remember, it was a, an extended family. It wasn't as though his wife was out on the street. Uh, but if somebody does that, if somebody leaves um, a home, the people they love, then one presumes that there's something um, very urgent in, their, in that need. And uh, I can, we can only presume that he had what we would call an existential crisis. So remember it, it's put in that mythological sense that as he's uh, taken out to do some hunting, um, he comes across a very sick person, a very old person, a corpse, and an ascetic sitting under a tree. So they're called uh, messengers from the gods. And what the myth is trying to tell us is that <clears throat> somewhere in his mid-20s, he, uh, he came out of youth and realized that, uh, in fact, what he was heading for was sickness, old age, and death. <laughs> and that can come as, as a shock to some, <laughs> to some, uh, to some people. So this, um, this realization that all the effort we put in life Everything we do, uh, personally, just ends up with a, just a load of ashes scattered here and there. And that basic meaninglessness of life. So in his day, of course, it would have been also included in this idea of rebirth or reincarnation. Which meant that having done all that, which was completely meaningless, ending up as a pile of ashes, he'd have to do it all over again and all over again 
and all over again. It just seemed to be a ceaseless process of um, life after life going through this same routine. And that was partly the despair of the age. And it was mirrored in a lot of uh, people moving out of the uh, lay life into some sort of ascetic practice. And there were many other religious teachers. Uh, perhaps the other famous one was um, the Nigantha, the, the person who founded the Jains, the Jaina. So he was a contemporary of the Buddha, you see. So when he left uh, his family, it was a bit like the hippies in the 60s, you see. He left everything to the sex, drugs and rock and roll, which is slightly different purpose, but even so. So we have to imagine that he's in a pretty turbulent mental state when he leaves home. And um, he's put mythologically, of course, as in, in the dark night, you know, he leaves on his horse, Kantika, with his servant, and he goes to the river, crosses the river, you see, you know, the Rubicon, and change of life, cuts his hair off, all that sort of stuff. And even his horse dies of grief. Imagine. It's a terrible time. So now he's left what we would call the sensual, the sensual life, the life of pleasure, the consumerist life. And what drives him there is the, the essential um, sense of uselessness about it, the vapid uselessness of sensual pleasure, if you're seeking true happiness everlasting happiness so the first thing he does is he joins teachers who show him how to establish very beautiful states of mind blissful states and this you'll find in all religions hmm? the ecstasies and the great thing about jhana the absorptions as we call them is that you don't need anything at all once you can access them so last night we did a little bit of metta practice so just by repeating that gently over and over, there's a sort of draw inward and the heart begins to respond and there's a lovely beauty comes to it and the body feels good. And as you draw inward to that, you leave the body into a beautiful state of, inner, of the inner mind. See? And you can stay there. See? So all you need is a loincloth eh? and a bit of food, a little bowl hang about, go and get your porridge, come back, sit under a tree and get blissed out all day. <laughs> and the problem with that, he found, was of course when he came out of it, he was still the depressed, anxious Siddhartha Gautama. So even though he now found a joy which was far superior to the ordinary transient pleasures of life, something you could really maintain <coughs> within yourself, and when you become an adept, you could just click into it, <clears throat> just settle down, and in you went into this inner ecstasy. Uh, there was this sense of uselessness again, because eventually you came out of it. So it wasn't eternal, and it was, um, although it wasn't based on anything outside yourself, it was based on some technique, some ability within yourself. So he had two teachers, and both of them uh, took, the, took, them, took him to a point where they actually invited him to come and teach with them. Yeah? 
but he hadn't really solved this gnawing problem in his heart concerning the meaninglessness of life that true existential angst so the next thing he tries um, is our mortification exercises and for this he he was obviously influenced by the Nigantha, the, the, the Jain founder. <clears throat> the Jains have a sort of idea that the jiva, the soul, is weighed down by these clumps of chewing gum, karmic clumps. So when you do something wrong, it's like a, it's like a splodge on your soul and it keeps it weighted down. And the way to get rid of it was through these heavy mortification exercises. And all these splodges fell off and the soul rose to the highest heaven. So it was very sort of material, a very concrete idea of what happened. And of course there's a truth in it that once um, our defilements uh, disappear, then of course we enter into a very beautiful state. And the idea was, or the understanding was, that the problem was the body. So you wouldn't have greed if you didn't if you didn't feed your hunger huh? you, if, you, if you let go of all sex and you just denied your body then you wouldn't have any lust so the idea of the ascetic life was to deny the body to draw it down to an essential um, just bones and, and, and a bit of muscle and keep yourself away from the world and in which sense everything would finally just drop off and the Jain saint is one who starves themselves to death Right? by which time of course they're, they're, not, they're not attached to anything and they also understood the role of desire so that was fairly you know that's, that was coming through from the Brahminical tradition too the idea of that the problem was desire Socrates understood that, that <clears throat> the problem was this desire this attachment to things so he tried these exercises um, and he talks of himself being able to hold his spine through his stomach. Have you tried that? <laughs> so he got thin, really thin. Uh, but unfortunately he still ended up being miserable. So there came a point where he realised this wasn't taking him anywhere either. Right? He, just, he almost killed himself, he could say. So at that point he leaves his companions, his five companions. Well now we can only presume that he's in a bit, bit of a state of despair because he's gone out with this real hope of finding an end to this inner suffering that he has, this inner meaninglessness of life. And he's tried all these famous teachers and he's, he's almost killed himself with these mortification exercises and he's still stuck. He still hasn't answered this deep inner problem. So one can only presume that he's feeling pretty wretched standing on the roadside. Now you, some of you will know that Sujata comes with an, off, with an offering of rice pudding for the local god. It's actually rice cakes, but I much prefer rice pudding. And seeing this poor wretch, she offers it to him, you see. In the, in the literature you'll see that he's shining like a god and she mistakes him for a god, but <laughs> basically he's pretty miserable. And eating this stuff... Uh, revives him you see now shortly after that time and this is why we call him self-enlightened he has a memory okay and the memory concerns as a child watching his father doing a plowing ceremony 
So this is to open the ploughing season. And he remembers the state he was in while he's watching his father doing this ploughing ceremony. And the state he's in is an absorption state, but it's also full of inquiry. It's full of curiosity. It's the first time he's really uh, become aware of this ceremony. Okay? And he's a child. Uh, at this point, his whole practice turns around on itself. He's no longer trying to escape suffering by finding some other heavenly state. He now turns upon suffering and asks the question, how does suffering arise in the first place? And it's with that new inspiration that he goes to sit under a tree. He sees no other way apart from this particular tack and he determines to sit there either to crack this problem or die. Lucky for him, <laughs> lucky for us, he cracks it in a mere six hours. <laughs> and from that point on, something has deeply changed within him. His relationship to the world has been completely turned around. So now let's just go back a step and just consider this state that he, that he remembers from childhood. Okay? So if we take anybody under six, under seven, that sort of age, when you see a child looking at something they've not seen before, like a, a beetle or something, their eyes become fixed on it, they even stop blinking. Yeah? The jaw drops and they look gormless. Yeah? Huh? And they're completely fixated on it. There's no thought in the mind because they can't describe it. There's no concept to attach to it. And then when it's completely absorbed, they turn around and say, what is it? See? And the dutiful parent says, that's a beetle. Right? From that point on, that child never sees a beetle again. Huh? Because every time we see a beetle, we put the experience of all past beetles onto that beetle. In other words, the life that we lead are constantly being distorted by concepts, by our history. In order to find this path to the end of suffering, we have to go back to that mental state. We have to go back to the original mind, that's what Zen calls it, the original mind of the child. And that is our difficulty. Our difficulty is to draw this intelligence, right, the Buddha within, this intelligence, to draw it out of its confusion with the intellect. And all meditation techniques are trying to make us do that. That's the prime object. All this stuff about mindfulness and uh, constant attention, concentration, all that sort of stuff, is all subservient to the point of trying to purify this intelligence we have, this intuitive intelligence. Hmm? So, for instance, in this technique, and I'll go into it in more detail uh, this evening, the idea of using a single word is at least to draw the intellect down to a singular concrete concept. Rising, falling, there's no thinking around it, see? And at that level, it's possible to draw this intelligence directly into the experience that's happening, which is at the level of sensation and feeling. Okay? And if you, whatever techniques you've practiced, you'll see that the whole technique always draws you back to your body, back to your sense base. 
because it's there that you begin to rediscover this a way of looking at things and the practice of that quiet abiding that we do is to clarify that awareness right an awareness which is not engaging which is completely open just like the child's mouth dropped hmm? just like its eyes fixed just receiving just receiving hmm? and it's only within when that has been established do we bring in this quality of curiosity and it's an open curiosity it's the curiosity of a cat hmm? it mustn't come from any any expectation or any ideas it's just a complete state of curiosity best coming from a position of don't know you see don't know so that's what we mean by right awareness um, in terms of its quality but this curiosity remember is has already been shall we say um, uh, educated to look at certain things and that's where the three characteristics come in so if you're going to anybody who's into science anybody who's into nature uh, an artist they all have to develop that open-mindedness again or else they just repeat the whole point about an original artist is that they see the world differently and to do that they have to drop all the art that they've learnt before huh? a philosopher has to drop all past philosophy in order to see in a new way a scientist has to investigate not from the point of view of what has already been discovered but from what has not been discovered it's the new question it's the new way of looking at things that brings discovery hmm? but even so there is that scientific knowledge there is that philosophical knowledge and there is all the artistry sitting as it were behind supporting the looking so with us it's the buddha dhamma and especially the teaching around impermanence the role of desire as the cause of psychological suffering and the fact that nothing has any substance nothing's real huh? that you can't point to something and say this is real this is me right because every time you hold on to something that's me it's constantly disappearing okay so we understand that and it lies as it were underneath the looking we're not thinking about it we're not bringing it into the practice right it's there it's already there because we've been taught to look like that and so when we sit we put all that to the side at the end of last night's dis, uh, instructions I said putting all instruction aside see? so you use your instructions you use your your techniques to get yourself primed to a point where you're just observing just feeling just experiencing what's drawing your attention within the field of awareness it's simply that and it's the simplicity which foxes us we're looking for something a little bit cleverer than that something a bit more I don't know demanding so as long as we understand that in our practice right we keep we keep bringing ourselves back to that simplicity then slowly but surely that original mind begins to manifest much more obviously to us and we know when we're in it and we know when we're not in it now the other thing is of course to bring that same sense of mindfulness into daily life 
So this morning we were talking about work, about actually bringing it into everything we do. Um, when we're conversing with each other, when we're thinking about something, like planning our holiday or something, uh, when we're doing something. So obviously there, it's a different type of awareness. The awareness now is caught, is now, is now in to action, right? Is now in to doing. Before it was abstracted, it had found this observation post within ourselves. Hmm? But now it has to re-enter, right? It has to re-enter the psychophysical organism, this body, mind and heart, and through it into the world, okay? And once that happens, once that happens, um, the idea is not so much to be observing ourselves, but to be, to have that, still that wide open awareness so that we are also aware of not only what we're doing, but what we're feeling. So that we know, for instance, when we meet somebody, we feel a high degree of irritation and hatred. See? On the surface of things, I may be presenting a very kind, lovable, huggable person. You see? But inside, I'm just, I want to strangle the person. So here I am, not getting caught up in either, but putting my attention more in the process of observing. When I'm at work, and outwardly I'm doing my work very well, and it's all very diligent and all that, inwardly I'm utterly and completely bored, see? And I'm aware of that, you see? Somehow I can stand above it, I can be with the boredom, and yet pay attention to what I'm doing, and come from a different place, a place of wisdom, a place of compassion, whereby I can actually put my energy into the right intention. And I can only do that if I can dissociate from, disidentify from this boredom, from this irritation, from this depression, from this anxiety. As soon as I drop into an identity, I am bored, then I'm, who's going to get me out of that? As soon as I say, I am depressed, that's it, I'm stuck, I'm depressed. See? So the whole point of this meditation is to continue that sense of objectivity within us. Not suppressing it, you see? Not pushing it aside, not turning away from it, but allowing it to express itself at that level of awareness somewhere within that field. See? But my attention is on what I'm supposed to be doing. And with that attention, there comes an intention. Whenever I place my attention, it must be an act of intention. And that's what's conditioning me. So every time I start a job, every time I meet somebody, every time I go to work, every time I come to sit, there, 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 is, there has to be just that moment of inward gazing. There has to be a sort of uh, a global awareness of both what's outside and inside. Hmm? And then having recognized it, I can make a skillful decision as to what I'm going to do. See? So that's the distinction between this vipassana, right, which is about investigating these three characteristics, and mindfulness in order daily life. And what that draws us to, as the Buddha says, is clear comprehension. That's his, his phrase for mindfulness, clear comprehension. So when you're stretching your arm, you know you're stretching your arm. When you're opening the fridge, you know you're opening the fridge. When you're closing the fridge, you know you're closing the fridge, right? In other words, you're not walking out of the kitchen and slamming the fridge behind you. Yeah? You're, not <laughs> you're not 
from here when the bell goes to the lunch right your mind is not already in the dining room and your body catches up 10 minutes afterwards yeah your mind knows that it's going to the dining room but your attention is right on your footsteps okay? and it's that it's that knowledge of where you're going somewhere in the future but bringing yourself constantly back to what is actually happening in the present moment okay? so that distinction has to be made if not then you might make the mistake of always trying to observe yourself at all times of the day see? and that just drives you potty frankly on the other hand you might think well when I'm meditating I'm trying to create something I'm trying to see these three characteristics you see so that's wrong effort right? you have to have a certain faith that there is within us this quality this Buddha nature call it what you wish which is which is constantly seeking its own liberation right that's what's suffering and it's constantly seeking its own liberation constantly seeking understanding and it's it's crying out constantly all the time get that meditated out of the way <laughs> see so as soon as you see yourself trying to do something trying to see trying to attain then uh, turn on it and say you're the meditator get out of the way see? <laughs> and then start again start again now during the day you see you can practice this this open awareness as you walk around the grounds for instance and just put your attention on a flower you see and see how the mind immediately tries to position it what type of flower it is describing it how wonderful it is right let all that pass let all that pass just keep keep the eye on the flower right and just be aware of the process of perception how is the eye seeing the flower right not what you think about it whether you've seen one before and all that rubbish just how is the eye seeing the flower when you sit out there when you're walking out there or well sitting actually that be my walk into something and you and you close your eyes and you start listening right Right? Just see how the mind wants to know what bird it is and where it is. All right? And just let that go and just put your attention entirely on the process of hearing. What is it you're actually hearing? Okay? In this way, you're constantly drawing this intelligence out of its confusion with the intellect. Confusion with history. See? And it's very simple to do it because all you have to do is relax. Just relax and put your attention directly on the sense base huh? so when you go for a meal and I'll remind you of this when we uh, when we go for lunch you see as soon as you put the, your food on the tongue there's always that comparison right this isn't curry this is something <laughs> this isn't pizza right there's always, there's always oh this is wonderful see right? so you let all that pass all that pass you put your attention directly on the tongue and you're back to being a child you're back to being a person who can directly experience what's coming from the body okay and that's the beginning of our practice all the time all the time to come back to the body the body offers us its sensations its feelings it offers us moods and emotions as felt sense and by drawing ourselves into that leaving thought alone then we begin to have these deeper insights into our nature and before no longer time we will surely be liberated
the scriptures they talk about so and so uh, having listened to the word of the Buddha went away into the jungle or forest to practice and in no length of time became fully liberated and the commentarial gloss is after 25 years <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's a gradual process a gradual process very good so I can only hope my words have been of some assistance may you by your fierce practice liberate yourself sooner rather than later thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate